So if you were going to have to wander in the desert, or in any type of land, actually, and you were told you were allowed to bring one type of food with you, what would you bring? I'm not talking about you get to have, like, all the varieties, like, okay, I I pick Chinese food, and you can have all sorts of Chinese. I'm talking about one specific food that you have for your entire journey. Practically speaking, now you might have your own thoughts on this, but practically speaking, a good choice might be bread, right? I mean, it it gives a sustenance to us, and it kind of fills us in a way that maybe some other foods wouldn't. I mean, after all, if you are a fan of Lord of the Rings, there's a reason why Sam and Frodo and their whole journey to destroy the ring are only carrying in their backpacks bread from the elves, right? And so we're going to see there's a significance to Jesus choosing bread here in this miracle. That there's a satisfaction factor that shows up with bread that Jesus is trying to use in feeding these people. Before we jump into it, I want to make some things clear Some of you may not know this, some of you may, but the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that's included in all four Gospels, showing that all four authors thought it tremendously significant, right? Other than we talk about the resurrection, but I'm talking about the, the miracles leading up to Jesus' death. So it's important to realize that here as we dig into it, that we're going to see some things that maybe... The other authors included, but John doesn't. We're going to see John include some things that they don't. But before we get into that, I I want us to also realize that we just finished John chapter 5, which was all about, really, one day. Right? Jesus healed the man that had been paralyzed for 38 years and then went on to have this huge, long conversation, really one-sided conversation, of Jesus describing to them who he is. Right? He talked about his, he was equal with God, the authority he has, and then all of these four witnesses that we've studied. All these weeks have been one day in John chapter 5. And now we come to Jesus in John chapter 6. Six months have passed by. So John is very picky in what he chooses to include in his gospel because he's trying to create a picture here of who Jesus is. But what we, I, want, I think it's important for us to realize there's a six-month gap here. From the end of John 5 until John chapter 6, we find out in John chapter 6 that it's Passover time, right? And because we knew what was going on in John chapter 5, in that time of the year, we know there's a six-month, at least six-month gap here. So there's a whole lot that has happened in between here. We'll get into some of that. But this is kind of John's way of writing, John zooms in on specific moments, specific days, right? We have... So much of John chapter 2 is just simply Jesus turning water into wine. In John chapter 3, we have this massive thing that is just simply one conversation of Jesus and Nicodemus. Or John chapter 4, we have this huge long chapter where most of it is Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. Right? John zooms in on very specific situations, specific days, rather than the quick moving feeling that we get from some of the other Gospels, where you get two verses, and then this happened, and then this happened. So there's a couple things that John does not include 
that some of the other ones do include, and I want to make some of those known before we jump into it. One of which is, we find out from verse 1 in chapter 6 that Jesus and his disciples are traveling, and the other Gospels include why. What has happened is, Jesus has found out from his disciples, he sent them out to do ministry, right? Jesus sends them out for periods of time, and they come back and kind of He teaches them again, and they they spend some time together, and he sends them out again, and this is kind of the way that Jesus is doing ministry. When they come back, they tell him that John the Baptist has been killed. So Jesus finds out about that, and he decides to withdraw to another area in order to kind of recover or grieve over the loss of John the Baptist. But he also takes his disciples with him because he wants to teach them kind of a go over what has happened since he had just sent them out to do ministry. So they need some time of rest. So we find out that that happens from other Gospels. That's why they're traveling. We find out from other Gospels that this crowd that Jesus feeds have spent the whole day with Jesus. We don't find that out in John's Gospel, but Jesus has spent the whole day teaching these people and healing them before the miracle happens. We find out that there's a large crowd following Jesus because so much has happened in this six-month gap period. The other Gospels kind of fill in stuff here. We get no reference, but the whole Sermon on the Mount has happened already. Or the fact that all these parables that are so well-known with Jesus, many of those have already been taught. So there's a lot that's happened here. Jesus has been healing people, so there's a large crowd that's starting to gather So that's what's not included, but then we do find out that John does include specific things that the other gospel writers don't. For example, the actual details of the conversation between Jesus and the disciples is not included in the other ones. We have actual quotes in the gospel of John. Or the response of the people who see the miracle, how they respond to Jesus is made known to us in John, but not in the other Gospels. And even the detail I already mentioned that this is Passover is only mentioned in the Gospel of John. So there's some significance to the details John is using here, and we'll see that as we go through it. But I just wanted to kind of put a basis, a foundation out there for us to understand this as we get into it. So we're in John chapter 6, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Then Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. 
So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the first group that John introduces us here to here, right here in verse 2, is he introduces us to this large crowd that's following Jesus. We see that these people are very excited. I mean, after all, they followed him to the other side of the sea, right? They followed him all that way. They're following him all, all the way to the mountain, it says, that Jesus is on. And we find out that they've done it with hardly any food, right? That they haven't really eaten much that day. So they're very excited about Jesus, that they're traveling all this way, even into a mountain with very little food with them. But there's a problem, Their passion for Jesus is polluted. They have yet to clearly identify who Jesus really is. And we see that they have passions for things that they shouldn't really be passionate about when it comes to following Jesus. The first thing we find out is they have a passion for personal blessing. Verse 2. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Right? Now, we know there was a six-month gap here. Jesus had healed a bunch of people. We know from the other Gospels that even this very day, Jesus was healing all these people in these crowds. But notice there's no mention here, right? Jesus was teaching and healing people. There's no mention that they were excited about his teaching. They were excited the fact that he was healing the sick. They were focused on purely the physical health that people were able to get from Jesus, right? They were willing to do whatever was necessary to get their health. Not much has really changed since then in our world, has it? I mean, how many people have pulled whatever strings they can, even if they're unethical strings, just to make sure they can get the vaccine before other people at this day and age? Now, I'm not saying to... Try to stay healthy is wrong, okay? So don't hear me say that staying healthy is wrong, but what I am saying is when your basis for being passionate and excited about Jesus is you think he's going to give you physical health, that's wrong, right? To be passionate and excited and following Jesus just because he's healing the sick is a polluted passion. Their desire as they're following him is what can I get next? He just healed a bunch of people, Maybe we can get a meal out of him. But that's not their only polluted passion. They also have a passion for political power. We see this show up at the end of the miracle. Afterwards, verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Prophet, right? This is what Moses has talked about, that there's a prophet to come. But notice what they link it to, verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is where the Passover detail that John includes proves to be quite helpful for us. Because it is in Passover that the Israelites, right, that the Jewish people start to get really excited about being liberated from slavery, right? After all, that's what Passover was. It was a remembrance of the fact that they were freed from Egypt when they were slaves. 
And now here we have them, and they are not slaves, but they're being dominated by Rome. Right? The Roman Empire is kind of governing them. So there's this expectation that kind of even gives a higher rise in their hearts when Passover comes of this day of liberation that's going to come. Right? Think of Americans on July 4th. But imagine if America was now being governed by another country. And every year July 4th comes around and it's this, this mentality of we want to start an uprising and be free once again. That's what's going on with the Jewish people here. So it makes, makes some sense in their context, right? That they think, we see this guy who's going to not only heal us, right? He's our doctor. He's now also our food distributor, right? Following this Jesus is going to give us good health and make sure there's food on the table. This is the type of leader we want as the Jewish people. Probably not just as Jewish people, but how many American presidents have run on this, right? We're going to take care of your health care, and we're going to make sure you have a job so you have food on the table. These have been political promises for a long time. So these people are excited about him, but see how polluted their excitement is, their passion is. It goes to the extent that they attempt to make Jesus their king by force. Jesus understands his time has not yet come. It is not time to be king. He's never going to be king in the way they want him to be in this earthly ministry. One day he will be. We know that from Revelation, but we know that at this point in time, he's not going to start an uprise against Rome and defeat them in war. But they disregard what Jesus wants, what, Je- what Jesus is saying about his, his time not yet coming. And so they try to force Jesus to be their king. Now other Gospels give us a little more details on how this ended. It says Jesus sent his disciples down to their boat. Jesus dismissed the crowds And then he withdrew into the mountain to pray. Here at the end it just says Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. But Jesus dismisses this. He doesn't want this. This is not how things are supposed to be going. But it's going this way because their passion for him is so polluted. Even though the people are extremely enthusiastic for Jesus, they're doing it for self-centered reasons. They're seeking what they themselves want, whether it's a material or personal blessing or some sort of national power they're seeking after. Both of these motivations are deeply problematic. I saw one of my uh, pastor friends, guy I know in, I think it's Sellersburg, Indiana, he uh, posted on Facebook that they're doing a boil water advisory right now, right? Have you guys ever had one of those here? I don't know if you guys have had to do them here, but we used to get them when I lived in Huntington, Indiana, all the time. It was like, it was like they didn't know how to treat their water or something, but we used to get them all the time. But the point of a boiling water advisory is what? So that you kill the bad bacteria, right? The polluted stuff in there so that you can protect that which is the pure, that which is the healthy This crowd has failed to boil their hearts. Their passions are polluted. They're they're filled with unhealthiness in that they, they want their personal blessings, they want their national political power, but they don't seek Jesus for the right reasons. Right? There's no purity in it. They're not seeking to say, why should we be following Jesus? Right? They're not they're not seeking to check why their hearts are really 
pursuing him. So that means we should ask ourselves the question, when's the last time our own hearts were boiled? Ask yourself, why do you get passionate about Jesus? First of all, you have to ask yourself the question of, do I get passionate about Jesus? Because if you don't in the first place, that's another whole problem, right? Human beings get passionate about whatever we find most valuable in life. Think of these people, right? This crowd, what is it that they are passionate about? What is it they find value in? Their health, having a full stomach, and getting freedom from Rome, right? I'm not saying any of those in and of themselves are bad things, right? Right? But look at our own lives. What is it that we are passionate about? What is it we find most valuable? Is it sports? Or money? Or other recreational activities? Or even our own families can become so valuable that we miss getting excited about Jesus. So first, if you have no enthusiasm for Jesus at all, you have to ask the question, how valuable is he to me? But then second, if you are passionate about Jesus, you still have to ask yourself, why? This crowd sets the example that you can be passionate and excited for Jesus for all the wrong reasons. Right? Let me just give you a hint. By the end of John chapter 6, right, Jesus meets back up with these people later and has a conversation with them, mostly one-sided yet again. And what happens is most of them walk away. Most of them stop following Jesus because They're not following him for the true reasons. And when the true reason they should be following him is revealed to them, they can't help but leave. Your passion for Jesus cannot be sparked by what you think you're going to get from Jesus. Whether it's materialistic of money or health, whether it's you think you're getting a good reputation and that you look good to people or it keeps your ties in your community knit together, or even a political promise, right? That you think as long as we just get a Christian president, he will fix everything. Instead, your passion for Jesus must be stirred by understanding Jesus correctly which is our next point. We see Jesus set up as the supreme manna in this miracle. As mentioned before, the detail of Passover that John mentions has deep significance in the point that John is trying to make here, right? When we think of Passover, who do we think of? Moses and the Israelites, right? Which makes sense if you remember last week, who was our accusing witness? Moses. And now... We see another reference to Passover, which links us again to Moses. But now add one more detail to it. You have Moses and Passover, and now you have bread. What do you think of? Hopefully you're thinking of manna, right? That God provides manna in the wilderness for his people. And what we're going to see here in this miracle is how Jesus is offering a better, not just a better, but the best, the supreme manna. First of all, we see the miracle go from a daily portion to an overwhelming abundance. If you remember the story of Moses and the Israelites and their manna, how much were they allowed to gather? Enough for one day, right? They couldn't grab any more than that. If they did, if it remained till the next day, it rotted inside their own house, right? This was to show the day-by-day provision that God was going to give for them. 
We're going to see at the beginning stages of this miracle that we begin this miracle with a daily portion of bread. Verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Right now, we tend to think Andrew just randomly shows up with this boy, but the other Gospels tell us that Jesus sent his disciples out to the crowds looking for anyone who had food. And this is what Andrew comes back with. But we give spe- we're given specific details here that we're not given in other Gospels. We find out that it's not just five loaves, but they're five barley loaves. Now, why is that significant? A barley was the ingredient that poor people used to make their bread. Barley was the poor man's ingredient. And likely, what this was, was this was this little boy's lunch. So when we hear barley loaves, we're actually talking like barley cakes, like little mini cakes. And when we hear fish, we're thinking it's actually more so of sardine size, more like pickled fish than it was these massive two or three feet long ones that we see in all the cartoon pictures of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Right? So this isn't big bakery French bread loaves like we see in the pictures. It's not these massively long fish. But really what this comes down to is we have Twinkies and sardines. This is what we got. And then we go on to see this massive number of people. But first we start with this daily portion, right? This was the lunch for this boy. His daily portion. This food was not going to make it through the end of the day. Verse 10, though, we see the large number of people. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Notice, 5,000 men. We're talking nearly 15,000 people. 15,000 people. Let me give you that perspective. I don't know if any of you have been to the KFC Yum Center, right, down in Louisville. The KFC Yum Center holds 22,000 people. So two-thirds of the KFC Yum Center full of people And you got five Twinkies and two sardines to feed them all. But look at the abundance that happens in the miracle. Verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted... And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. We see something mentioned twice. You catch it there in the end of verse 11, first part of verse 12. They ate as much as they wanted. They ate their fill, right? These people had full stomachs with the five Twinkies and the two sardines. And 15,000 people have their stomachs delighted, satisfied, full by the end of it. And even more than that, they gather up leftovers. A specific number of leftovers, right? Twelve. Now people have debated if this has any significance or not, right? 
Some say this is Jesus saying he has the ability to feed all 12 tribes of Israel, but we also know Jesus has his 12 disciples, right? And I think that might actually make more sense in all of it because remember, what was Moses and the Israelites, what were they allowed to grab? Enough for their daily portion. And Jesus takes a daily portion and he turns it into a daily meal for 15,000 people and then adds on top of it, his disciples get lunch for the next day. Jesus has an abundance that he is able to give. Jesus is clearly displaying himself, right, as the supreme giver of a supreme manna or a supreme bread that he gives to people. But remember this, in John's gospel, the miracles, or as they're often called, signs, are meant to point to something else. They're often meant, right, to point to a greater spiritual reality here. We think of Jesus turning water into wine, and it was to show that Jesus has an abundance and he has joy to give to people. We saw him heal the official son without even going to him, and we saw that Jesus not only is the giver of life, but he's the one who's the giver of faith, as the man has faith in the midst of Jesus talking to him. We see him with the paralytic, that Jesus is the one who can not only heal the body, but he's the one who offers to heal the soul as well. So what is this miracle of bread trying to point towards? We see later Jesus talks about the true bread from heaven. When Jesus later meets up with the same crowd after he walks on water, after, that, after next week's passage, later we see Jesus explains the meaning of this miracle to them. And I want to just hit a couple of those verses so we see this. This is significant for us to realize why Jesus does this miracle. Chapter 6, starting in verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, Give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The goal of the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 was never meant to show just an abundance of food for people. Jesus says, I'm the bread. I'm the one who gives satisfaction. I'm the one who gives Life, All those feelings of full stomachs and pleasure and all this abundance that they saw with this miracle are meant to display that Jesus is the one who can truly satisfy. Jesus is the one who can truly give pleasure. Jesus is the one who always has more of himself to give to people. While they're concerned with the healings, with getting food and their politics, Jesus states there's a deeper reality going on here that he is the one who satisfies to the depths of people's souls, that he is better than physical health, that he is better than food, that he is better than any sort of national power. And we find out at the end of all of this, right, that this is the essence of Jesus' ministry. Jesus ends up at the cross. Jesus ends up hanging there, taking on all of our sin. And he's resurrected three days later so that those who believe in him will be given new life. But the point of this healing, right, the point of this this resurrection of Jesus is not 
that your health might be healed. It's not that you will be provided food. It's not even that you will just later on in life get heaven when you pass away. The purpose of the gospel, the purpose of Christ's death and resurrection is that you get God. That you get to be in relationship with God right here, right now. It's not just about what you can get in the future. The point is, Jesus offers you God. The one who you were once separated from. The one that you were hostile towards. You are now reconciled to him and adopted into his family. Right? Jesus is saying that, This bread is not just meant to give you stuff. This is supposed to point you to me, that I satisfy in a better way that bread never could. Just like Jesus' death and resurrection isn't just that you'll get to be with Jesus later on, but you get Jesus now. That you get to be in relationship with God right here, right now. The miracle of the barley loaves isn't that Jesus was able to give just more bread than Moses. But it points to a supreme manna, a supreme bread, one that is all-satisfying, that's ever-abundant, and that bread is Jesus. He is the bread. He is satisfaction, and there is more than enough. There is an abundance of Jesus for us to have. Think of marriage as an earthly example. I didn't marry Lydia for her money. I didn't marry her for her possessions. I didn't marry her because of a certain skill set that she had. In fact, both of us had very little and money possessions to start with. I married her for the person that she is. And that this was the person I'm going to spend more time with for the rest of my life on this earth than anyone else. True faith doesn't come to Jesus seeking, what can I get from him? True faith comes to Jesus saying, I want him. Not what can I get, not what will come at a later date, but what can I have? I can have him right now? Give me that over anything else. So ask yourself the question, do you find yourself forever satisfied with having Jesus alone? Nothing else. If not a single one of your earthly desires was ever fulfilled again, would you be satisfied? Because you have Jesus. If you never got a raise again, if you never got a promotion, if you never got to update your house, if you never got a new vehicle, if you never got to watch your favorite sports team win the championship, if you never got another moment in your favorite recreational activity, if you never got another night with your friends, if you never had success by any standard that the world puts in front of you, but you had Jesus, does that satisfy you? Because it's only in being satisfied by him that you will ever seek an abundance of him, seeking more of him. I can promise you this now. If you're not satisfied with Jesus in your life right now, you're going to hate heaven. Because all it is is more of him. All it is is being more and ever satisfied with him for all of eternity. So if you're not satisfied with him now, you're going to hate it. You don't want it. It's only in being satisfied with him now that you're going to seek an abundance of him that you will look forward to one day being able to have. 
And as you find that you are satisfied with the one who supremely satisfies you, you then become passionate about that which satisfies you. And you become passionate for the right reasons, not polluted passions, but you're excited by the fact that Christ is sufficient for you. And this is your test this morning, church. This is the test of your faith. It's the exact same test that the disciples had. At the initial conversation of this account of the miracle, we gained insight to why Jesus did this miracle, what he was seeking to do in his conversation before the miracle. Though he later reveals the truth to the crowd that he is the bread of life, it's a present moment test for his disciples. Look at verse 3. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Before Jesus feeds the people, he starts poking the faith of his disciples, saying, Is there anything here yet? Are you guys recognizing all these signs and miracles that have happened yet? So first he offers them a chance for faith, right? Verse 5 and 6. He lifts up his eyes, and seeing that a large crowd is coming, he asks a question to Philip, right? Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now he asks Philip, likely because Philip was from the neighboring town of Bethsaida. Philip was familiar with this territory, And so Jesus is asking him, as the one who knows the area well, right, where are we to get bread? But notice the question is much, much deeper than that. Because verse 6 says, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. In this question, Jesus is offering Philip a chance for faith. He's asking really deeper questions here. He's saying, Philip... Who do you think I am? You've seen all these miracles, all these healings happen. He's asking, Philip, do you think I can provide for these people? I'm the one who turned water into wine. I'm the one who's able to heal people from a distance. I'm able to heal someone who's been paralyzed for 38 years. And if you think I am able to provide, what can I provide for these people? Not just do you think am I able to provide bread and fish for them, do you think I can provide something better and that I can offer myself as the supreme satisfier to them? Yet we see this chance for faith is squandered. Verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. 200 denarii was eight months' worth of wages. Philip says, I could work for eight months and not have enough money to feed these 15,000 people. But notice, there is no faith there. It is completely vacant. 
There's no reference to provision. There's no reference to Jesus, you can give food, or even, even better, right? Jesus, you are more satisfying than the food. He misses it. In verses 8 and 9, we see Andrew does the same thing. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. It sounds like faith, but then, but what are there for so many? So Andrew seems more hopeful, but then the truth is revealed. He says, who could use this little bit of food and feed 15,000 people? Who could do something like that? This chance for faith is met with nothing but confusion, even within Jesus' own disciples. We often have teachers in here, and I know we got some students in here. You guys ever do pop quizzes anymore? I don't know if pop quizzes are a thing anymore that people do. I loved pop quizzes, right? That's because this isn't an ego boost, okay? But I'm just saying I, I studied my stuff and knew my material. So I loved pop quizzes because it weeded out the false ones from the real ones, right? It weeded out not just those who cheated, but it also weeded out those who crammed the night before. When they, but now they didn't know this was going to happen. In a sense, Jesus is giving a pop quiz to his disciples here. These people are coming, and Jesus says, where can we get food for them? Giving them an invitation, right, of who do you think I am? What do you think I can provide? Do you think I can satisfy people? Brothers and sisters, let me remind you, each and every day of your life is filled with little pop quizzes for faith. Do you find that Jesus is enough for you in those moments? When you hear how much money somebody else makes, or when you see somebody else get a new car, or when you see a new house being built beside you, is Jesus enough? Or when your kids are out of control one day, or when your coworker gossips about you, is Jesus sufficient? Or when our whole society calls Christians nothing but bigots and says, we need to cancel them. Is Jesus all satisfying? Day after day, your faith is being tested. It's only those whose faith rests in the true bread from heaven, Jesus himself, that you will find yourself truly satisfied. And thus, as you're satisfied with him, you find yourself passionate for him, not by polluted desires, but passionate about God himself, whom you only get reconciled to through Jesus. Because you recognize it's only in Christ that you find an abundance of satisfaction. In fact, more satisfaction than you will ever need in this world. Let's pray.